page 930 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own, uh, will bring you to Acts chapter 21. If you're visiting with us, we are um, uh, quickly approaching the conclusion of a, a two-year series in the book of Acts. And uh, today we are coming to Paul's return after many years on the mission field to Jerusalem. Acts 21, we will read the majority of the chapter, uh, leaving off at verse 36. This is the inerrant word of God. It deserves all of our attention. Let's give that to the word now. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then, when we, then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who 
have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And Paul told, or then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he's defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, what is your idea of a happy ending? What's your idea of a happy ending? In our disnified age, we expect happy endings, don't we? Uh, movie producers will hardly greenlight a project if there's not a satisfying conclusion where the two protagonists live happily ever after together. And um, you think about it, if we're going to spend hours upon hours uh, reading books, or reading a book, maybe for some of us, Days and days and months, months turn into years trying to get through that one book that's been on your nightstand. Uh, we read it and then we get to the end and the main character dies. What? All of this time I put into this and there's not a, a happy ending? We, we feel like we've been cheated. I think that what commonly happens is that since we are used to happy endings in our entertainment, we expect happy endings in our life. We expect them in our life. And some misconceptions about Christianity and theology compound the problem. Isn't that what God's here for? To give me everything I want? To make my life easy? To give me a happy ending? To put a nice, neat bow on all my endeavors, all my relationships, and even my life? So I want you to be thinking about what makes for a happy ending because we're coming to the end of Paul's missionary journey here in Acts 21. He is ready to make his return trip to Jerusalem. Now, he first made his travel itinerary known in chapter 19. You can flip there and uh, keep your Bibles open. We're going to go to a number of different passages just to kind of get the historical layout and the background of what's taking place. First, chapter 19, verse 21, Paul there declares his travel plans. And he says, it says there, Luke writes, that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul wants to go to Jerusalem so that from there he can launch uh, um, out towards Rome. But even that is not his final destination. Spain 
is actually the end goal. You remember Paul has a, a philosophy of ministry, not to build on a foundation of any other. There's already a church in Rome. He wants to go there to visit, but he doesn't want to go there to, to do ministry per se or to, to camp out there. Rome is just a stop on the way to Spain where there is no, as of yet, no gospel witness. And we read that in Romans. So if you turn to the end of Romans, this kind of just helps us figure out where we're at in the story and what's going on. Romans 16 and verse 24, so it's the very end of Romans. And this is what he writes to the church there. He writes, I hope to see you in passing... I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong chapter. Verse chapter 15. Chapter 15 of Rome and verse of Romans in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. So there he tells them, this is this is just a stop on the way as I go to Spain. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is, this is where we're at next. He's going to Jerusalem when he writes this letter to the Romans. It's the same, same time period. And he says there why he's going to Jerusalem. Bringing aid to the saints. Bringing aid to the saints. Returning to Jerusalem was necessary, we learn from Paul's own writings, because he wanted to deliver personally a monetary gift uh, that had been collected by the Macedonian churches that he had been planting and visiting. So he'd been sent off from Jerusalem. He goes to this Gentile territory, establishes churches. He encourages churches, and they give a financial contribution that now he's going to take back to the mother church, the, the predominantly Jewish church, and say, look at how all the G- Gentile Christians are supporting you. That's what he wants to do, and we read of that in 1 Corinthians. Last place here in our introduction will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're told why exactly Paul feels he must go to Jerusalem. Now concerning, this is verse 1 of chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And here it is. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they'll accompany me. And apparently it does seem advisable to Paul. He wants to go to Jerusalem. But interestingly, as we read Acts in the passage we're looking at in chapter 21, it does not seem advisable to those who are around Paul, surrounding him in in ministry and in support. The earnest believers that know and love him think that there is nothing so foolish as for Paul to go to Jerusalem. So notice first this morning the caution, the caution that Paul receives about this trip that he intends to make. First Jerusalem, then Rome, then Spain. But in particular, they really don't want him to go to Jerusalem. He receives the caution twice over. First, in verse 4, from the disciples that they found in Tyre. Verse 4, chapter 21. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Next, 
He receives a caution in Caesarea where Paul and Luke, this is verse, um, let's see, verse 9. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered, so Luke's with them, this we language again. We entered the house of Philip the evangelist. You remember him? Last time we saw him, he had uh, uh, brought in an outcast, the Ethiopian eunuch. This is that, Philip. And we're at his house, and then a prophet comes by. His name is Agabus, and he performs what's called an enacted parable. He uses um, um, uh, props. To, to bring home his point. He takes Paul's belt, and he ties his wrists together, he, he binds his feet together, something that Old Testament prophets would do a lot. They would uh, take something uh, physical, something tangible to prove a point. And he says, we read, that this is the word from the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, Paul, and they'll deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. This is what is going to happen to you. You're going to get bound up. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be given over to people who don't care about you and your welfare, the Gentiles. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what will happen. And the reaction from those in the household is to beg Paul not to go. Much like what the disciples in Tyre did, right? Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And their concern is understandable, is it not? Paul had really um, overturned the apple cart. He had thrown a monkey wrench into the whole uh, Jewish system. And so now he wants to go um, back to the heart of the Jewish mafia, right? Back to the home turf and, and encounter these people who more than anyone else would have been upset with his preaching of justification by faith alone, his insistence that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised, and all the rest. And they're saying, things can't turn out well. You're, you're going into the lion's den. Why are you doing this, Paul? Please don't go. They love him. They, they plead with Paul to reconsider. But what I want to point out is what's striking about the caution that Paul receives isn't that he receives it twice over, but that in both instances, the Holy Spirit himself is involved. Did you notice that? Verse 4, it says that the disciples at Tyre, through the Spirit, urged him not to go. And then with Agabus, he says it so plainly. These are the words. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. The Spirit is involved, it seems, in this caution. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wasn't that same Spirit also the one who urged Paul to go to Jerusalem in the first place? Indeed, he was. Remember, we read chapter 19, verse 21. Paul was resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Even more explicit is what he says to the Ephesian elders. You can just flip the page in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. This is what he says about going to Jerusalem. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained, compelled, I must, by the Holy Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, the question, right, isn't this a contradiction? The Spirit cautioning, it, it appears, Paul not to go, but then the Spirit also previously telling Paul he must go. Some scholars, some Bible re readers have gotten all tied up in theological knots trying to untie what they think is a theological knot 
with these different verses? How do we reconcile these verses? Well, let's keep in mind some basic theology. First, God does not lie. Second, God is not confused. Third, God does not confuse. And if these things are true, then there must be a way to reconcile these things without saying that, as some have suggested, Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. Um, he, he should have listened to the Holy Spirit as it was uh, conveyed through the disciples at Tyre and uh, the Agabus at Philip's house. But you see, Luke, when he records this, doesn't say that Paul said, well, hang on a minute, I guess this is a new revelation from the Spirit. We've got to work this out. I've got to pray about this. I've got to fast about this. Because the Spirit told me one thing. Now the Spirit's saying a second thing. So I guess I need to, to, to submit and to listen and to try to discern According to the narrative, Paul never once thinks there's a contradiction. Why? Because he knows God doesn't lie. God is not confused, and God does not confuse. And so, what does that mean? What's taking place here? Well, the Spirit has revealed to the disciples in Tyre and in Agabus what he has revealed to Tyre and, in Tyre and through Agabus actually confirms what he previously revealed to Paul does not contradict it at all. It's actually a confirmation of what he previously revealed. When we read the text in chapter 21, we assume, we assume that it is the Spirit urging Paul not to go. But that's not what we read. Rather, the Spirit reveals to these Christians what he's already revealed to Paul. Namely, when he goes to Jerusalem, he will be persecuted. He'll be arrested. He'll be bound. The Spirit reveals that, and it is the people, not the Spirit. It is the people who urge Paul not to go. They've received this revelation, and now this is their application of that revelation. Do not go there. This is what's going to happen. And Paul's thinking, I already knew this. I knew this. This just confirms what I already have been told by God. And so Paul is not disregarding the Holy Spirit here. As he persists on towards Jerusalem, at least one commentator I read took that approach and he titled his sermon on this chapter, When a Good Man Falls. He believed this was Paul's great moral failing that he, he insisted to go to Jerusalem. But it's the opposite. These cautions underscore just how dangerous the trip would be. And yet Paul is so solid. Paul is so faithful that he goes anyway. He goes anyway. So notice, secondly, in contrast to the caution from the friends, the conviction of Paul. We see that especially in verse 13. His response to his friends comes there when they, they're pleading with him. Luke has joined in the pleading. They're begging him not to go. When we heard this, verse 12, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And now look at Paul's resolve, his conviction, his commitment in verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Literally, it's something like this. Why are you turning my heart into powder? That's that's the idea for breaking. The word there, breaking, means to kind of grind up. Um, I think it would be very accurate to say that the, the, the gist of what Paul is saying here is something like this. Why are you crying in front of me, making me sad, and in so doing weakening my resolve to go to Jerusalem. It's as though he's saying, you know, it's already hard enough. 
I know, I know what's out there. The Spirit has attested to me that in every place I go, persecutions and, and, and trials await me. That's bad enough. And now you're crying about it. You're weakening my resolve to do this very difficult thing. And yet his resolve won't be weakened. Even if it's true, imprisonment awaits. In fact, he doubles down. Did you notice that? Look at what he says at the end of verse 13. An amazing statement. What what, what are you doing? Weeping and and trying to weaken my resolve. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. What conviction. What commitment. Do you and I share it? Maybe we think this level of spirituality uh, is reserved for Christian elites like Paul or other heroes throughout history. A correspondent uh, in the 1500s wrote to Erasmus, the Catholic theologian, remarking to him in this letter, that the price of wood in London has become considerably advanced. Why do you think the price of wood in London has become considerably advanced in the 1550s, 60s? Because of all of the martyrs being burnt at the stake. The price of wood in London was considerably advanced in consequence of the quantity used in the frequent execution of heretics in Smithfield. That's what he writes. You know who those heretics were? They were our Presbyterian forefathers. Puritan forefathers. This is part of, I mean, it's part of our Christian heritage, no matter what stripe, denominational stripe you belong to. But as members of this church, you have the name Presbyterian as part of uh, your church affiliation. This is part of our history. It was Presbyterians. It was Puritans who were the ones causing the inflation of lumber prices in London because of how often they were being burned at the stake for preaching the doctrines of the Reformation. And maybe we think that kind of thing, that kind of commitment, is reserved for, for these greats like Paul and, and Polycarp or Presbyterian and, and Puritan martyrs during the time of the Reformation, but, but not for me. Well, I want, I want to say to you today that Paul's conviction... I'm ready to die for Jesus, should not be considered um, a lofty statement of extreme spirituality, but rather the default for every Christian. This is the default disposition for every Christian. And why do I say that? I say that because the reason Paul was able to make that commitment, that conviction, to, to be steadfast and immovable in this, The reason he could do that, you and I share that same reason. How is it that Paul could say, I'm ready to die for Jesus? Because Jesus died for him, and he died for you and me too. That's what inspired Paul. That's what motivated Paul. He had a willingness to be bound and killed for Christ because Christ was bound and killed for him. And that dying love has been shown to all of God's children, including you and me, and should he not receive that same love in return? Richard Baxter has a hymn. Uh, there's a line from it that goes like this. Christ leads me through no darker rooms 
than he went through before. Do you hear that? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by this door. So when we're called to suffer for Christ, we remember that he suffered for us. When we're called to die for Christ, we remember that he is not calling us to anything that he hasn't already done for us. No, he died for us. And yet we live in a day and age in a culture and a context where dying for Christ is so rare. It's not even on our minds, really. It's almost non-existence. And so if the concept of dying for Christ is non-existent, you know what's happened? I think the idea of sacrificing anything at all for Jesus has become foreign too. And yet when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so maybe you're thinking... That if tomorrow my life was required of me, you know, at, at the hands of, uh, of uh, persecutors, those who want to, to kill me because I say I'm a Christian, if that was to happen tomorrow, I'm not ready to do it. I don't think I could do it. And I would want to gently suggest, friends, that if you've never given up anything for Jesus, then when the time comes to give everything up for Jesus, it will be hard. And you probably won't be able to do it. So that means we start now to be willing to give him what he asks of us when he asks of it. Your time, your ambitions, your relationships, your career, your your convenience. And when we do that every day, we renew our, our love and our affection for the Savior who gave everything for us. We remember all that he did for us. And when you do that, no, be, be assured, have confidence that he will work in you a spirit of calm and steady resignation and submission to his will, whatever he calls you to, whatever you must give up. Notice how Paul's resolve actually strengthens the resolve of his friends. I'm ready to die, and what do they say? Seeing that we couldn't convince him, we say, let the will of the Lord be done. Maybe you've known something like this yourself. You've seen a friend walk through a trial with such cheerful or unflagging trust in God that it made you say, indeed, let the will of the Lord be done. Wouldn't that be a great thing for, for us to encourage one another in as a congregation to demonstrate to each other that God's will is good and that his pathway is perfect for walking in and his providence is perfect for resting in? And when we took our congregational vows for the Neuenheises, we said that we would commit to encouraging them in, in our faith. Well, maybe this is one of the ways we could encourage one another is by showing others that there's a particular trial you're going through, a particular heartache, a, a, a difficulty. Maybe it's financial, emotional, relation, relational, and yet you commit yourself. You resolve to say, let the will of the Lord be done. And you say it with a smile. Imagine how that would encourage the rest of the church. Let the will of the Lord be done. This is Paul's commitment, and it has this effect of of strengthening the commitment of those around him. Well, we move along here quickly in this narrative. Paul follows through. He arrives in Jerusalem. He's greeted by the church that meets at James' house under his pastorate. And they have a concern. This begins in verse 18 and following. Um... Well, 20 in, in, in particular is where the concern comes out of how 
Paul's reputation might affect his ministry in Jerusalem among even believing Jews there because uh, they explain there's this misconception that you just don't care at all about the ways of Moses, about the uh, traditions of our forefathers. Uh, This is unfounded, these rumors. Um, They thought that Paul was telling people to disregard the Mosaic law. And so the idea is that, that James comes up with is to appease these people. They suggest you should undergo this kind of um, traditional ancient cleansing ritual for a week's time. Uh, that's an ancient custom. And they also suggest that he pay uh, the offerings for four other brothers who were fasting and taking a Nazarite vow for the Lord. Maybe you remember what the rules of the Nazarites is that they wouldn't cut their hair. So it talks about how they're getting ready to shave their head. The time for their vow is to be completed. And when that would happen, they would give an offering to the temple. They say, we want you to cover the cost of that offering. And Paul's willingness both to undergo this, this um, cleansing ritual and his generosity in paying the offering of these brothers was um, meant to go a long way in quelling some concerns that people in the church had about Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 9.20 in action. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. That's why Paul agrees to do this. But in the end, it doesn't matter. He's spotted in the temple by the Jews from Asia, perhaps ones who had been following him for some time, causing riots. And they do that again. Bedlam ensues. The crowd tries to beat Paul to death. And finally, a Roman official steps in, saves his life, and then we come to the end of our passage in verse 35. When they come to the steps of the barracks, he, Paul, is actually carried by the soldiers to get him away from the mob because the violence of the crowd, verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And I want to conclude returning to that question that I asked at the start. Where's the happy ending? Where's the happy ending? Were you wondering that? We know uh, there's been all this talk that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be imprisoned and beaten, but wasn't there part of us maybe that expected since he was willing to follow through in the face of such danger that the Lord would rescue him at the last moment? I mean, isn't that what happened with Abraham and Isaac? That was a happy ending. Why doesn't that happen here? Why does it end with the mob carrying Paul away away with him, away with him? And the answer is, is this, and it's very important. The plans and purposes of God are not karma. What's karma? Karma is like this. Um, boomerang, right? What goes around comes around. Do good things for God, expect good things in return. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. That's not how God works. Sometimes God blesses his people in that way, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes there's no rescue that we can see. Sometimes it just ends with the mob carrying us away. The happy ending isn't here in Acts 21 because, friends, the happy ending isn't in this world. It's not in this life. There is a happy ending. There's a glorious ending. But there's no promise that you're going to experience it before your dying day. And knowing that, my question to you is, are you still willing to sign up to follow this Christ? To submit to this God? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus in the path that he set for you, even if it ends in flames? Will you take whatever he gives you, even if it's seemingly not that great? We have a hard time with that. Maybe some of you have a hard time with that at the dinner table with your little ones. Well, I don't want this. This is what we're having tonight? Can we have, can we have something else? What about, I, you know, Mom, I know there's frozen chicken nuggets in the freezer. You could, you could pull those out. I just worked on this dinner for an, an hour, honey. Yeah, I know, but that will only take two minutes. This isn't that great. Give me something that I want. Don't we act that way with God sometimes? God gives us something, it's not great, and we say, well, then I won't take it. Are you willing to follow this Christ no matter where it leads, even if the ending isn't happy? You see, the Bible's answer to this difficulty, which I think saints of old got better than many of us do today, is this. As long as God gives me himself, I have everything I need. As long as he gives me himself, I have everything I need. We see that in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 50 as we close. Uh, Verse 7, a helpful verse for us in this respect. This comes in one of the servant songs that predict the responsibility of the Messiah. In this case, Isaiah 50, verse 7, the servant is to suffer in order to sustain the rest of the nation. That's what God's calling him to. And what's his answer to this task? Isaiah 50, verse 7 But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. The servant, his face set like a flint, like a stone, immovable. He's determined to go where the Lord has called him to suffer willingly. And why? Because he says, the Lord helps me. The Lord God helps me. He helps me. This is what the best of God's servants have understood, that their joy and their happiness and their confidence was not that the Lord would necessarily bring them out of a trial, but that he would be with them through the trial. It's not that the Lord gives me everything I want. It's that the Lord helps me in everything that I need. The Lord God helps me. Jesus knew this. He's the one who has fulfilled Isaiah 57 when he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, knowing All that it held was a cross. We see Paul doing the same here. And so have many thousands of faithful believers throughout the ages. They have marched faithfully to death, not banking on a last-minute rescue, but banking on the never-leaving, never-failing help of God. Let me tell you about some of those men who caused the rise in lumber prices in the 16th century in London. One was Bishop Thomas Bilney. He was influenced heavily by the tracts he read of Martin Luther began preaching the doctrines of justification and he was arrested and he was forced to or or compelled to recant and he did they released him and he was filled with such shame that he determined he would preach his heart out for the rest of his life no matter where it led two years later he's back in prison he will not recant so they take him to be executed and there were several monks there at the, at the moment of his execution. They'd given public testimony against Bishop Bilney. And, and they see the, the clamor of the crowd that they're on Team Bilney, not Team 
monks, and they're thinking, oh, no, they're going to come for us. And so they whisper, moments before his death, they whisper to Bilni, these people will believe that we're the cause of your death, and they will withhold their alms. Upon which Bilni said to the crowd, good folks, be not angry against these men for my sake, as though they be the authors of my death. It is not they. He recognized this came from the hand of God. Let the will of the Lord be done. John Rogers, the very first English Protestant executed under Bloody Mary, was burned at the stake in 1555. And it was said that he was was assisted by a great number of people as he approached death, even being comforted by his own children. He had nine or eleven children. They're walking with him to his death. And it was said that he went with such joy to the stake to be burned alive, it was as though he was walking to his wedding. Roland Taylor, martyred also under Mary, when asked by the local sheriff how he fared, said this, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better, for I am almost home. I am almost at my father's house. And there's the happy ending. Not here, but above. In our Father's house where there are many mansions, Christ has gone to prepare a place for his people. Will you be there? Almighty God, we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts, causing us to put all our hopes all our trust in you, that we would have a cheerful, joyful submission to your will, whatever it might call us to. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.